0: I couldn't really like think, oh my God, I'm spending the rest of my life in in prison. It's 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 more of a it's a death sentence, but it's a death sentence walking. You know, so it's like you're you're on death row. You know, but only thing about death row is that you're locked in a cage and out here you can walk around but you're close custody, so you gotta count numerous times a the day, you're limited to jobs, um it's And you can breathe the air, you know, To you either die in prison or whatever happens. A Living Chance is a podcast created by the members of the California Coalition for Women Prisoners that shares the stories of people serving life without parole in the state's women's prisons and educates the public about life without parole sentencing, or the other death penalty, as it is called by people in prison. This podcast features the stories of people currently serving life without parole, formerly incarcerated people or prison survivors and advocates and organizers in the fight against life without parole.
1: I'm Adrienne Sky Roberts, a longtime volunteer organizer with the California Coalition for Women Prisoners. I am Amina Colbert, organizer and advocate for California Coalition of Women's Prisoners,
0: formerly incarcerated, survivor of domestic violence and state violence.
1: Can I ask you a question, Amina? Sure. So you served a life sentence. Yes. And you served alongside people serving life without parole. Yes. How would you classify or describe life without parole?
0: Yeah, I would classify it as a walking death sentence. People don't really understand. They're like, well, you're, they're alive and they're breathing. They're not um, in imminent danger of lethal injection. But it's just, it's just as worse because the health care in the prison sucks. A lot of women succumb to cancer and is not treated properly. And they're suffering in there. If it wasn't for the aid of other women that's comforting them, it would be really, really, really hard. But to walk around dying of a slow death for me and many would be worse than knowing a date when I'm finna to go and have this lethal injection placed in my arm.
1: Mm hmm. One of the reasons why we wanted to make this podcast is to shed light on what life without parole is and how this sentence and these people's stories are hidden from society. So throughout this podcast, we're going to hear directly from women and transgender people serving life without parole in the women's prisons. So next we have Ellen and Liz who are going to discuss
0: the institutional discrimination while serving the life without the possibility of parole. And what happens once they get sentenced to state prison?
2: When you get um, sentenced to death row, you're immediately assigned federal public defenders. You start immediately working on the constitutional arena of your of your conviction. But as an LOP you get some funky little public defender that gets paid regardless of the outcome. They put together some little thin um, appeal for you And then when you lose that, which you most likely will, um, then you're on your own. In this huge, the dragon just grew 10 feet, because most people don't have experienced, um, they're not experienced lawyers that can come to a a prison law library that's usually outdated and too small to start finding their case. Um, Also, we don't, we're we're kind of the dust in the crack, (laughs) We're not seen by the legal system so much um, a lot of death row um, people sentenced to death there are a lot of people out there helping them out and they get a receive a lot of legal attention and then you see a lot and um, for people that are seeing the the life termers that go to board but the LWOPs were just kind of like the dust and the crack that's just not seen and we just don't receive the same legal attention when we have the same needs. And, and we are just like those on death row. We are sentenced to death. It just happens naturally.
0: Yeah, it is a death penalty. No, yeah. To know that you're forever going to be enslaved in an institution and never, ever, ever, like, touch sand or, you know, yeah, see or be, be able to embrace your family again.
1: yeah. Is yeah. real. And yeah. the fact
0: that they don't get a lot of uh, attention from organizations or law clinics or I mean, death penalty. Of course, it's because it has high. No, it has a high notoriety, especially at a time voting, mm-hmm. when voting and elections come around. A lot of politicians want to, you know, dig that back up and let's discuss the inhumane treatment of people being on death row and they, right. and being sentenced to life without the possibility is overlooked. Because people assume, well, they're still alive, you mm-hmm. know, they still have their breath, they're still living. But a lifetime in prison is no way to live, with, especially with all the suffering mm-hmm. that is known that goes on inside um, institutions. Yeah. Yeah. The dust and the cracks.
1: Right. Like Liz said. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: In this next segment, we're going to talk about the difference between life without the possibility of parole and those serving
1: life with the possibility. Exactly. Parole is never guaranteed. Someone could be sentenced to 25 years to life, seven years to life, and spend the rest of their life in prison. But the difference is that they have the opportunity. Uh, right. Totally. The opportunity. So, someone with
0: a determinate, just like someone with a determinate sentence, they have a specific day, they know when they're going home. People with indeterminate life sentences, at least they also have an idea of when they'll be able to go and prove themselves worthy to re-enter what is termed civil society, whereas a person serving life without the possibility does not even have that option. Mm-hmm. The option is leaving a
1: prison in a pine box. Mm-hmm. What was it like to know that you had that opportunity, and then people who you did time with and loved and built relationships with didn't?
0: oh, it's it's sad. I mean, it's sad and it kind of makes you feel like uh, guilty for having the opportunity because leaving a lot of um, great women behind who, you know, are just as deserving as I am of a second chance is really is heartbreaking, Mm -hmm. especially in, in prison.
1: Yeah. To demonstrate just how hard it is for people who are leaving prison to leave behind their community serving life without parole. We wanted to play a clip from Glynnis reading a letter from a young lifer that she received once that lifer had paroled.
3: This is a letter um, that was given to me by one of the young lifers that paroled who had been incarcerated since she was 16 years old and um, at her parole date was um, 40 years old. It's December 2nd, 2014. Dear Miss Glennis, I can't tell you what a pleasure it's been to meet you and to get to know you. You are such an amazing lady with such talent, class, and elegance. You're an awesome friend who has defined the word friendship for me. Never give up. You're worth it and deserve a second chance. I believe in you and the drive and motivation it takes for you to achieve your freedom. Fight for it and know that I'll be out there waiting to see you again. Besides, I need someone to to design my wedding dress. You and Lainey take care of one another and never stop the fight to get home to your families. They're all anxiously awaiting. I'll do all I can to help as soon as I get on my feet out there. Give me a few months and I'll do my best to be a voice. I'll be in touch soon again. Thank you for everything. I feel honored to have you as my friend. Love, Anna.
1: Amina, will you tell us about how someone gets a life without parole sentence? Yeah, so um, folks are sentenced to life without
0: the possibility of parole for first degree murders with a special circumstance. That special circumstance could be murder for financial gain, it could be lying in wait, or any any kind of other underlying felony attached with the actual murder. And unfortunately in California, LWAP sentences are handed out like candy.
1: Yeah, totally. And first degree murder is murder with intent. Right. right? To yeah. intent to cause harm. hmm Malicious intent. And the one the piece around murder for financial gain, I feel like it's one that a lot of people who I know inside serving LWAP, that is their special circumstance because the prosecutors will twist their story, right, of abuse or of self-defense against an abusive husband or an abusive partner to say that they killed him in order to get access to his life insurance policy money. Right. Or I'll give you an example.
0: When I was first arrested in 2003, I was arrested for first-degree murder, the special circumstance of lying in wait. And um, I was in an abusive relationship. I did not want to be with my ex-husband any longer. So I believed that I could escape and leave him on my own. I started dating a guy that was my coworker. And my mother told my ex-husband while he was in prison that I was seeing another man. So when confronted by my ex-husband, I didn't lie to him. We shared a child together. I told him he can always see his child. However, when he got out of prison, his whole attitude changed. He wanted me to show him where Joseph lived so that he could shoot Joseph because he didn't want another man walking around that had slept with his wife. So for two weeks, I would take him to random apartment buildings that had like gated entries and be like, oh, well, we can't get in here. He lives here, we can't get in. And every night I would be pistol whipped or beat until I showed him where Joseph lived. i um, trying to get help from family, didn't work. My mother closed her door to me. At that point, I felt hopeless, helpless and powerless. And I succumbed to his wishes and I set Joseph up. For my ex-husband, and who in turn had his little brother shoot Joseph. Wow! And for that, I was charged with first-degree murder for lying in wait because I set Joseph up to be murdered, despite the fact that I had been diagnosed with battered women syndrome and was in a domestic violence relationship. Mm-hmm. My ex-husband was never charged with anything, and my brother-in-law, who actually did the um, committed the murder, the case was dismissed on him, so he never
1: served a day for the murder of Joseph. Wow. Only I did. Wow. So you were the only one who went to prison. Right. Yeah. And were you going to be sentenced to life without parole? Right. I took a deal. Okay. So, yeah, I was looking at
0: life without the possibility for, I mean, yeah, murder, special circumstance. Yeah. But I took a plea bargain for 15-a-life, believing that I didn't even, at the time, I didn't even know what a 15-a-life sentence meant. My attorney was just telling me. You'll be okay. You'll get out after fifteen years. I know you will, but I didn't know like the ramifications of taking a life sentence, all that right. I would have to do, and that they didn't have to let me out. And I, this was at a time when lifers weren't being paroled. Right. But I didn't know. But yeah. Today, I'm out and I'm home, so I'm I'm glad that I did take mm-hmm. um a lesser sentence. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. How much time did you end up doing? Fifteen years. Fifteen years. And now you're out and on parole. Right. Yeah. And your story is so similar to everybody serving life without parole. Right. Right.
0: Right. But we don't hear those stories. Yeah. When um, women are going to court or going to trial, all you hear are the bad things or what happened. Someone's life was taken and Mm -hmm. that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. But you never hear the background story of what led up to that happening. Mm -hmm. It's like that's not even factored in in a lot of cases. They're not allowed for those that do go to trial. They're not even allowed to bring that up. Totally. You know.
1: Yeah. That's what I hear so much from our members inside is like in their original trial, any evidence of their abuse or their self-defense is deemed irrelevant. Right. And the like thing that people say to them is that uh, you're on trial. Your abuser is not correct. But without sharing that whole story. Right. The jury and judge and everybody only hears this very small and inaccurate version of what happened. Exactly. Because you're not allowed to be a victim. You're Mm -hmm. not allowed to to
0: present your victimization. Mm -hmm. So that is kind of suppressed. You have to put everything that you went through to the side because what matters who the victim is, the person that lost their life. Mm -hmm. So the state doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you lost your life. Mm -hmm. They expect for you to Mm -hmm. lose your life, you know, because Trying to protect yourself from abuser or
1: batterer willing to land you in prison. Yeah. Or if your life was being actively threatened, which yours was. Yeah. Um, And also, I mean, it feels important to say that, like, not only is this the culture of courtrooms and the culture of the law, but it was also, like, written into the law. Right. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. women who were on trial who had abuse histories and current realities were not allowed to, by law, bring that evidence in. And it was only, again, around the early 2000s that that changed, that people were then able to appeal using evidence of domestic violence or mm. battered women's syndrome. Yes. Yeah, intimate partner battery, mm-hmm. battered women's syndrome mm-hmm. diagnoses into their appeals, right, right mm-hmm. after they've already served X number of years in prison. Correct. Yeah. Yep. That's some fucked up shit. Extremely. <laughs> So, at the California Coalition for Women Prisoners, or CCWP, as we say, and maybe before I go there, I should say, CCWP is a grassroots organization that's been around since 1995 and was started by people in the women's prisons who were suing the governor. It was Pete Wilson in the mid-90s for how terrible their health care was, like you were saying earlier. They sued the the governor because the health care was so bad. They said that it was cruel and unusual punishment, which of course it was, and still is, right?
3: I've met a lot of women who have been incarcerated for 10 or 15 years and are just finding out this year, last year, that they're hepatitis C positive. And guess what? It was in their file for 10 years. You know, how do you let somebody run around not knowing that they have a life-threatening, communicable disease?
1: That was the voice of Judy Reese testifying during the lawsuit, and Judy died in 2004, shortly after being released from prison. The people inside involved in the lawsuit did win, even though nothing changed. But that moment in the mid-90s was like the catalyst for our organization. And it was through that lawsuit that people inside the prison reached out for like intentional allyship with people outside the prison. So our organization has members on both sides of the prison walls and we've always worked with people sentenced to life without parole. And it was just sort of in the last four or five years that we started to really pay attention and like really start to try to build campaign and build momentum around life without parole sentencing. And what we know, what we have learned, and what you know our organizers and members inside have taught us over time is they're almost all survivors of some kind of abuse or violence and are in prison with life without parole because of the proximity to their abusive partner's crimes, right? Many people are in prison for defending themselves against abuse. We also know that it's majority women and people of color, much like mass incarceration in the United States, is disproportionately black and brown people. Folks sentenced to life without parole in the women's prisons are, a lot of them are first-time offenders. Yeah, offenders, language of the system, but their first time, it's their first time going to prison, right? So many people had no prior contact with the system whatsoever, and their first contact, they're sentenced to life without parole. And then so many are also mothers or parents and have families and have been parenting from behind prison walls. Yeah, so that's sort of like our snapshot and some of our biggest learnings over this period of time of really focusing on LWOP in terms of like who is in the women's prisons and how does this issue of life without parole affect women and transgender people in the women's prisons specifically? Another thing that we have learned about the Life Without Parole community that's less quantifiable is the way that they serve as the backbone of the prison.
2: Um, I think that the biggest role that LWAPs play is that we are constant. We are that constant force that moves the prison because we're always here. So as people leave, you know, as people die, as people do the things that other people do besides LWAPs, LWAPs are going to always be there. The ultimately, working their way up to the middle of the ship that makes it go. Because without us, there's no constant slave labor, you know, because everybody else is leaving. And now, thank God that women lifers are starting to get found suitable in, in large numbers. Um, it's the LWAP community that ends up being the main driving force on that slave ship, for real. And right now they have us restricted to all the jobs that make us self-sufficient, um, that teach us anything other than rowing. And But when it comes down to it, at the end, we're going to be all they have.
0: I believe that the um, justice system use death penalty and life without parole versus other indeterminate sentence arbitrarily. Um, we are not allowed to ask for a recall of sentence under Penal Code 1170D, we are not allowed to ask for a compassionate release. We are not allowed to ask for medical parole. We're we are not ever allowed a gate pass. You know that's for minimum A, B inmates. So they have their different criterias, but yet you expect us to remain in an eight man cell. You expect us to um, work until we are in our gray age, our old age, seventy five years old. We have seventy five year old women still
3: expected to work.
1: So one thing that I have learned that both. Ellen and Bobby speak to in the quotes or the stories that we just heard is this paradox in the way that LWAPs really hold it down in the prison system, right? Like within the community of people and yet are also discriminated against by the institution. Can you talk a little bit about that paradox? Um, yes.
0: In the community of women housed there, Women serving life without the possibility of parole are instrumental in holding the community together, accountable and educating. But on the flip side, and when it comes to the administration and the guards and just the prison staff in general, that's when they come into play where it doesn't really matter. When laws are being passed or, or jobs are being offered, LWAPs are excluded because of their sentence and the law, a lot of laws don't affect people serving LWAP sentences. They tend to favor those serving lesser sentences. So I think that's um, the paradox. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that was like, actually part of our, like one of our kind of organizing, I guess, values was that uh, LWAPs are always left out of all of these reforms, right? And usually in like mainstream reform movements, we're looking at nonviolent non-serious non-sexual offenses and that will never those reforms and those initiatives will never right be relevant to someone serving life without parole right right because mm-hmm. that's first degree murder with special circumstance it's seen as you know some of the worst of the worst that's right and mm-hmm. we really at ccwp were like wait that's where we need to be turning our attention to we need to go there where other organizations or, you know, folks are not willing to look, right, right? because it's not an easy win. Right. Yeah. So, can you tell us
0: what is the history of LWAP?
1: Yeah. So the history of LWAP is pretty intimately tied to the death penalty. LWAP has been a part of the U.S. Penal Code for over a century. And in the mid-20th century, there were states that started to include LWAP as a possible sentence in murder cases, like, more often. But it's still in, like, the 1970s, which is an important era when it comes to the death penalty. So still in the 1970s, life without parole was a pretty rare sentence. And then in 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court banned the death penalty altogether Ruling that it was unconstitutional, which of course it is, as is life without parole. right. And people on death row during after that decision was made, they had their sentences commuted to life without parole. And that commutation of of people's sentences on death row to Lwop was really supported by death penalty activists at the time because it was, like, one step closer to getting rid of the death penalty, to getting rid of lethal injections and execution by the state. And then I think it was four years later in 1976 that the death penalty was reinstated. And so even though the death penalty was, like, back on the books and people could, could still then receive that sentence, death penalty activists continued to really prop up LWAP as the best substitute for the death penalty. And it was during that period of time when the death penalty was off the books that there was a rise in life without parole sentencing because it was, you know, the next maximum sentencing possible. It's important to say during
0: this era, like the 70s and the 80s, that there was a shift from focusing on rehabilitation, which we know is a joke, to a more law and order mentality mandatory sentencing, tough on crime, legislation. The three strikes law, this is the era of the war on drugs. So state mandatory minimum require judges to impose life without the possibility for certain convictions. First degree murder with special circumstance, that is more of that era's rise for the LWAP. And of course, this is all operating within racial violence and gender systems of state violence that are disproportionately locking up poor people, black and brown people, gender nonconforming people, and women. So, that's a a little bit about LWAP and the death penalty and how these stories are
1: intimately connected. And then, if we fast forward to 2012, those of you all who are California voters will remember, hopefully, that there was a proposition, Prop 34, on the ballot that would have repealed the death penalty and replaced it with life without parole. So, making the maximum sentence in California for murder be life without parole. So that same rhetoric of life without parole is a humane alternative to the death penalty or a reasonable substitute to executions, when what we know is that it's just a different form of death. Right. So Prop 34 did not pass in 2012. And then it was like resurrected in 2016 under Prop 62. And it was essentially the same. And it would make LWAP be the substitute for the death penalty. It also didn't pass. And what did pass was a proposition that ran at the same time, Prop 66, that essentially does the opposite. It speeds up executions, right. meaning that in California, there hasn't been an execution since 2006. And we may see that they start to speed up and happen again. I feel like we're being repetitive, but it's still so important that that life without parole has been cast as the substitute and the humane alternative and everything we know about everyone we know inside is that it is absolutely not
0: that's right it's just a a walking death sentence a slow death yeah a slow painful torturous death
1: yeah i remember ellen saying at some point it's like every step i take is to die in here exactly every step is like closer to dying a quote-unquote natural death in prison if you believe that people could die of natural causes in prison, which I don't think either of us believe. No. It's like living in a box
0: and knowing that, yeah, like you'll never ever get out of this box and no matter what happens to you, um, you try to take care of yourself as best you can. However, that's not good enough. Just, Just waking up every morning, living with the realization that one day you're going to die and you're going to be in prison and you're going to be all alone. It's torture in itself. Yeah, I mean, who wants to die alone?
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And LWAP is a ridiculous sentence.
1: L- LWAP gives you no reason to live. It gives you no reason to get better. It needs, gives you no reason to rehabilitate. Um, it strips you of your humanness. Mm-hmm. You are without hope. You are in the darkest place imaginable. You know, they talk about the other death penalty, and indeed it is. Um, the only thing is, we're free and in, in, uh, relatively speaking, um, within the prison grounds, and we can have a, an existence here, a life here. It is senseless. There's no wiggle room at all with right. being an LWOP. None. No latitude for, um, for hope. No place for anything. Mm-hmm. You just make a decision: Am I going to live a healthy life, or am I not? Am I going to be part of this community, or am I going to be on the fringe of this community? Am I going to help, or am I going to be a problem? Mm-hmm. Those are All those decisions have to be made. We are in quite a moment right now in relationship to Life Without Parole in California, Can you tell us about what's happening? What's happening is that Governor Jerry Brown
0: has been doing some extraordinary work with commuting the sentences of folks sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Yeah, Jerry. Right. You know, um, (laughs) six months left in his term. And as I hear it, he is really has plans or has his sights on commuting the sentences of
1: women and men serving life without the possibility of parole. Yeah. And we know that there are eight people from the women's prisons who have been commuted so far. And last month, I picked up from prison my friend Liz, who was the very first woman to be commuted from life without parole to 25 years to life who went before the parole board, was found suitable, and then released. Right. So, mm-hmm. and that was, I mean, I think we're going to try to get Liz here to share with us about her experience. But I can say from my perspective, I never thought that I would be driving to Central <laughs> California Women's Facility to pick someone up who was once sentenced to LWAP. I mean, it felt historic. Absolutely. And this wave of commutations has restored a,
0: a lot of hope and excitement for those serving life without the possibility sentences in prison. So, pushing our efforts to try to uh, get a lot of commutation applications in
1: mm-hmm.
0: and commute all five hundred. Right. Is it 500? 500? five thousand? Five thousand. Yeah. Five thousand. Yeah,
1: we think it's like five thousand around five thousand people men and women, men and, women mm-hmm. and transgender people serving mm-hmm. LWAP. And then in the women's prisons, there's around two hundred and eighty nine people with that sentence. And we want them all commuted. Right. Commute them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Jerry Brown if you're listening. Commute all 5,000 people. Yes, free them all. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so upcoming episodes of A Living Chance will include exploring the relationship between LWOP and being a survivor of violence and abuse, growing up in prison, serving a life without the possibility sentence, juvenile sentenced to life without the possibility, and we'll hear from people who were once sentenced to life without the possibility and are now free. If you wanna get involved in our fight against life without parole sentencing, please check out womenprisoners.org. You can also check out DropLWOP, and that is D-R-O-P-L-W-O-P.com to sign our letter asking Jerry Brown to commute LWOP sentences and to sign individual petitions. One more you can check out is a alivingchance.com to hear more from our incarcerated members and collaborators on this podcast. CCWP, along with California's United for a Responsible Budget, that's CURB, are holding a lobby and rally day on Life Without Parole on August the 6th from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. with a rally and speak out at noon at the Capitol in Sacramento. For more information, please contact info at womenprisoners.org.